got your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at a few verses and dive in. Um, I, I really appreciated a word that Pastor Tellis said this morning or this afternoon before we stepped here, uh, stepped into this moment of the importance of slowing down. And so um, I just I want to be able to slow down and allow for this text to speak to us. Um, speak to me. I feel like some really clear things that God wants to say to us in the unique season that we're in. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, bless the reading of Your Word. It was three weeks ago, and it was a, seemed like a normal Tuesday when I sent my daughter off to school, um, she came home that Tuesday night and uh, told us the tale of what occurred at her school uh, throughout that day. Uh, the previous day, uh, Governor Northam had made uh, some decisions regarding um, the involvement of parents in the lives of kids, of their children, as it pertains to identity, gender. The result of the decision of the governor the following day was for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids throughout the state to stand up and to walk out, creating a defining moment, a clear line in the sand. She came home and... Uh, as you can imagine, there was a flurry of really great conversations about what had happened for that day. And in the midst of the conversations, there was questions of gender, of her beliefs, of so much about life and society within this culture. And in the midst of it all, though, came this singular and I felt like defining question that she was really trying to get at. And it was simply, Dad, what is the big idea of the Christian story? It's the big idea. Like, get me out of the, the chaos and the questions and the specificity of gender and sexuality and everything else. Get me out of that and put me up on a higher space so I can see the big picture. Give me a horizon I can look at. Put my eyes on. It can guide me. What's the big idea? A couple of days ago, I had an amazing conversation with a leader within our church, navigating some significant moments in this person's life, challenges throughout, questions throughout, theological, deep theological questions that were rocking the boat of her life. And in the midst of the rocking, she was asking and asking and asking, and yet 
really taking a step back, what she was just trying to get at is, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? I really sensed that in the midst of studying for this text and where we are as a church and where many of us are as it pertains to our culture, many of us are asking that very same question. What's the big idea, Corey? Bring me back. Bring me up. What's the horizon? What can I look at in the midst of a daunting cultural moment that we find ourselves in? What is the simple big idea of the Christian story that I can lock into right now? It's almost as if, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy watching boxing and UFC and and when a boxer has a really tough round, they have something to fall into. They have, at the end of the round, they fall into the arms of a cut man and a corner man. The cut man uh, heals them as best that he can as it pertains to the wounds, and a corner man reminds them of the game plan. John tonight is our cut man and our corner man. He's going to bring us back to in the midst of the, sw- the swarm and the, the challenge and the voices and the ways by which we could get pulled into the chaos and the darkness and the fog of where we are, John's going to pull us up. John's going to give us a big idea that we can look at and be defined by and return to again and again and again. John's going to help us with the big idea. When I, I think about the book of John, um, I, I love what St. Augustine says about the book of John. The gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child to not drown. I love that. It is, it is simple and profound. It is beauty and transcendence and challenge and so simple. What we find in the book of John is that 90% of John is different from the rest of the Gospels. See, the synoptics are to see together. The, the, the Gospels, are the, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they give us a play-by-play on, on what Jesus did while John tells us who Jesus is, like who he really is. And what he does is he allows Jesus to describe who he is himself. So you've got seven I am statements and seven miracles. It's just... Beautiful what John is doing when it comes to helping us understand who this dude really is. And he's allowing himself to articulate it. What we find is, is that when it comes to the space that we just read, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, it's probably one of the richest parts of the book of John. It's called a prologue. Prologue, uh, what it's doing is it's, uh, it's taking an inter, intertextual echo. What that means is, is that what we're going to find is there's going to be some, some texts throughout the Bible, the Old Testament especially, that we're going to find echoed and we're going to be able to catch and apply and discuss and walk into. And all throughout the book of John, or the, the, at least with the, pro, the prologue, we're going to find a bit of a rhythm. He's going to start with the word, and then he's going to go into the witness. John, John the Baptist. The word, the witness. It's this, uh, as uh, many... Theologians identify it's called an inclusio. He starts with the word, 
and ends with the word. When it comes to the, pro, the pro, prologue, he's really trying to drive in who, who, is, who is this Jesus? Who is, who is he from the very beginning? And what John does is that from the very jump, he says, in the beginning, the word. Man, cool thing about John is that he's writing, so like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're writing to specific groups of people. John's a little different. John's writing to multiple cultures. In fact, he's writing to all people. And so in the beginning, man, mash up, like you better, like, like go back to Genesis because he's about to go there in the beginning, the word, the logos. Now, he's writing to Greeks and Greek philosophy was constantly trying to figure out, so it pertains to ultimate reality. Where does ultimate reality come from? When it comes to like science, like mathematical thought, uh, the laws of science, rational thought, like where does all of this come from? And there was this eternal idea that everything flows out of what they called the logos. It was an impersonal force that just was, it, it floated in their language. It was a part of their culture. The logos equated impersonal force. And guess what John does? John comes in and said, you think you know what the logos is? An impersonal force? Let me introduce you to the real logos. The logos, this is what he's saying. The logos is not an impersonal force. It's a personal God. The big idea of what John is beginning to say is, the, the big idea is that, is that we have a personal God, not an impersonal force. Everything about our society is trying to help you, uh, trying to indoctrinate us uh, in this current space that we're in, that, that God is he's being pushed to the margins, and as a result, he is... That, you, that we actually live in a space where you, you now replace God. You are a God on behalf of him. It's, uh, it's, it's the sovereignty of self. It's the kingdom of me. As a result of my own personal power, now, now it, is, it is replaced a need for a God. So we don't, we don't need that. Everything about our society is, is about impersonal force. So we, we can kind of understand what John is trying to do. What he, he's focusing in on is that this, this Logos, this Logos was with the Father from the beginning is what he says. This is a, a term of face-to-face. -face. Out of the community and communion and relationship, the, 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 the connection, the self-deferring relationship that the son was with the father from the very beginning and out of what he's experienced from the father, this is what he brings into humanity. He is the Logos. He is the personal God. What, what John is saying is that it's not just that's, who, that's what he does. It's actually what John is saying. That's who he is. That's his name. It's one of the names of Jesus. It's the Logos. What's interesting about what John does is that at the end of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, what John does is he actually gives a, a summation of the entire book in one verse. This is what he says. But, there, but these are written so that you may continue to believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of what? His name. Like this is who the Logos, this is what John is saying. The Logos entered into our humanity in order that you might no longer be be trying to swim around in a cesspool of chaos where you are at the control panel, but that we have one who was from the beginning, who is now a personal God that has given us his name that we might have life in that name. You want to know what the big idea is? The big idea of the Christian story is that, that the very, from the very beginning, we have a son who is thinking about us and how he might give us his very self, Amen. specifically his name. I love what G.K. Chesterton says. He says this. This is so, I've never heard a quote like this. The key that fits the lock of the wondrously specific indentations of reality. He's saying that Jesus is the lock, is the, is the key that fits the lock of all of reality. He's the one that opens the doors. He's the one that closes the doors. He is the one that gives purpose. He's the one that gives identity. John is telling us that you want to know what the big idea is? Get to know the key that unlocks every lock, that, that every door is made for. This is what he's saying. He's giving us now this, 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 this constant reminder in the midst of a steady drip of secularism that we live in. We're, it's like an inordinate focus where I am told I am the poor affection on loving myself, loving someone else, or loving something above all. And that the need for God is that we've evolved above that. We've developed that we have technology. That that power now gives me the power to power up. That I can create my own world of safety and happiness. And there is no need for any God whatsoever. This is what we're told. And this is like John is saying, hold on, hold on. Slow down. Take deep breath. In the midst of your search for Logos, here's the Logos. Here's the true word. Sent that you may have life in his name, that he might unlock every locked door Amen. through him. The big idea. So simple, so profound, preaches easy and lives hard, that we have a personal God over an impersonal force. And can I, can I just pause here? For most of us, we get swept into this constant tension of coming to church, and it's so easy to, to love Jesus, but then be a functioning atheist as it pertains to, to how we, on an ongoing basis, operate with his direction and guidance and oversight and leadership over our life. And Paul and John is just simply, God, he's just reminding us that you have to, you fight the tension and the bent to lean away from the impersonal force by, by choosing to allow the name to be spoken over you and redefine you every day. Every day. He's the name. He's the name that brings life. 
Then John, he, he moves forward and he goes, he, he goes from, in the beginning was the word, that he made all. That like a king who speaks in Genesis chapter 1, the word speaks. Ten times he speaks and ten times things are made. Three days to create, to, to, to create, three days to bring life. This is the word. The word speaks, the word speaks, the word speaks, the word brings life. The word brings life. And then what, what John is doing is he's now taking the same uh, jumping off point of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he's, he's transitioning into this idea that, that the big idea is, is, a, is not just a personal God. But it's a power that overcomes. It says that if you remember in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, 2, 2 and 3. It says that the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. It's a word for deep, for, for void, for darkness, emptiness. It's tovu vavovu. This is this Hebrew word that is, is rich, it's meaningful, and it, commu- it communicates emptiness, desert, and without purpose and completely void. And what we find is that what the, what the, the writer is communicating is a beautiful poem in Genesis chapter 1 is that the word was spoken. Now, in, in multiple creation accounts, like for example in Babylon, the way that the world was created was through like a war. Blood was spilt. One side defeated another side, and as a result of one side being victorious, they spilt the blood of, of their enemies, and it created the oceans. Here, we have the word speaking. Let there be light, and the tovu vavovu, the darkness, the void, was pushed back. One word, in one verse, in one moment, we see the expression of the power of God through the word in the text. Now, you, we see that and we're like, okay, Bendix, I, okay, the power, I, I think I've got it. Let, let, me, let me unpack it just for a second. The distance between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles. Now, if that equaled one piece of of paper when it comes to its thickness. The distance to the next star would be a stack of papers 70 miles high. The distance across our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. A galaxy has 100 million stars, and that's a dwarf galaxy. Super galaxies are somewhat uh, potentially 10 times larger. There's 200 billion galaxies. And the number of observ- observable stars is, is 1 times 10 with 24 zeros behind that. We don't even have a n- number for that. Now, if you were to take every grain of sand in the entire universe, stars without number the sand. And what the, the text tells us is that Jesus is holding all of that 
by the word of his power. That depth, that power, he spoke and he created light, pushing back darkness. Power. Now what's, what's amazing to me is that in the creation of mankind, man being now the image bearers of the God of all creation, they create out of community, Vesuvius of, of relationship and connection and, and humility and service to one another. They want to bring humanity into that. And they take mankind and go, we've, we've got to continue what we have. Let's bring man into this. And man is formed and fashioned and they are designed, humanity is designed to simply be a viceroy, a, a now a king in the kingdom God has created for humanity. Simply to express and embody the beauty of the community found in heaven. And here they are, they are, they are designed to simply be like God on the earth. They're gardeners, that's what a king did. They are kings, kings. And what's amazing is that when the result of the, of, of the fall, the rebellion, they didn't fall like trip, oh, it was a straight up rebellion against God. And when they turned their back on the creator, what happened is that, that as sin entered into the world, like, it wasn't just like a spell got put on to humanity. There was such a rebellion, there was such an impact of sin because the greatest tearing that could possibly occur, the relational tearing between God and that which he made from his very image, it's been torn. And so as a result, sin enters into the world. Now, what's amazing about Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. Now, remember, I was talking about tovu vavovu. It sounds so bad when I say that. Gosh, I wish I spoke Hebrew. That would be fantastic. This is what Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 says. And he's talking. Now, the context here is that mankind has now adopted a lifestyle of idols. The whole world centralized around the love of and creation of and protection of worshiping idols. And this is what Jeremiah says as a result of this sin that has infected God's people. This is what Jeremiah says about the impact. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. Tovu vavovu. And to the heavens, and they had no light. Do you see what's happening? There's a decreation of the earth. See, what God did in the, in the moment of creation, he takes the word, the logos, and he speaks. And the logos now pushes back the darkness and brings in life. Well, at the point of sin, depravity, and rebellion, do you realize what's happening what was pushed back now is starting to push against God. And what we have in sin is we have sin taking over the world. That, that what once was perfectly in creation, now darkness, according to Jeremiah, that the impact and effect of darkness is overtaking everything. 
And yet what we have in Jesus as the word is that he is one who is ruthless with the darkness and gentle to those who are immersed by it. What you have with Jesus when he comes onto the scene in John 1.1, he says, I am not, not just that John, John is describing who Jesus is. He says he's the, he's the word, but that the darkness could not overcome him. What he's saying is that although God spoke the word and pushed back the darkness, guess what? God is, is doing a Genesis 1.1 moment yet again in John 1. And he's stepping into humanity and he's going, you know what? My dad did this years ago and I'm doing it with myself from this point forward. I am entering into humanity and I am the light of the world and I'm pushing back the darkness and there's no amount of darkness that can actually resist me. That what you have as the big idea is that we not only have a God who is personal, combating the impersonal voices in our world. We have a God who is so powerful, nothing can overcome him. And I, let me just pause here and say, can I just encourage you that for so many of us, we, have, we are stuck in a treadmill of sin where we're like, I don't think that God can overcome this. That this darkness is overcoming me. Can, can God do anything here? You have the word to remind you nothing, no darkness can overcome the beauty and the power and transcendency of who the Logos, who this, who this man is in Jesus. This is what you, this is the horizon. This is the big idea. This is in the midst of the fog. You take a step back and you look at that. We have a God who cannot be overcome. He's so committed to you overcoming, he's willing to now step into our reality. And so this is, like, this is the flow of what John is, where he's going. And then he, he kind of lands the plane in the prologue as it pertains to the focus of the word. And he says that, yes, he's powerful, but we don't just have a God who's powerful. We have a God who's personal. The presence has come home. This is what he says. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, for the first few verses, he's bringing in language of Genesis 1. But then he goes Exodus style. And he starts to talk about the tabernacle. Dwelt. If you go to the original language, that word dwelt means to tabernacle or to tent with. And what, G what John is saying about Jesus is that everything that the tabernacle re represented, it was... Temporary, it was at the center, made to be at the center of the camp. It was designed to be the place where God and man met. It was almost like the navel, the, the divine navel. Of God and man meeting together in one place. It's the place where, where sin was, was taken care of. Things were sacrificed there. God's relationship with mankind was restored there. What is, he, what is John saying? What, 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 is he, what is he trying to communicate to us? That Jesus is crossing the boundaries of intimacy. 
putting on the flesh what you and I navigate. And he is taking on everything that the human story is. And in Jesus, we have one who came to not just defeat it with power, but to come close to be personal. This whole idea of, of a God's personal, it, it brought me back to a story. I told this story a long time back, but it just hit me freshly this, this afternoon. Um, as a high school student, I, um, I was caught up into some, some things that were, had grabbed a, a hold of my soul as it pertains to what I was looking at. And I was a senior in high school, junior, senior. And I had something I was watching late at night. And I thought my parents were sleeping. And I was, I was watching this. And out of the darkness, I feel a hand on my shoulder. Moment of shame. Moment of embarrassment was quickly swept away by the voice of my dad. He said, I love you. Let's talk about this. I'm with you. Authority and power comes close. Brings healing, empathy, understanding, hope. Coming close, entering in. This is, this is Jesus. This is the story. This is the hope. This is, this is the power. This is the big idea of who God is of how committed he is to our story and us being restored and now redeemed and put back into a place of viceroys, of, of those who represent the creator. Love what... This is a quote, this is a, a, an amazing poem. Edward Shalito says this. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They, they rode, but thou stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds only, God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is God's commitment to enter in, to come close, to be immensely powerful, but intensely personal. To be the only one that has faced and felt and seen and navigated what we see. And yet he has the power to come and, and present himself to us in a way that we can receive with tenderness. So all, all of this, of what I've said so far, this is what is called orthodoxy. This is right thinking. This is right theology. This sounds good. I get it. I'm sure you're here going, okay, I got you. That was good. But what do I do from here? Where's the orthopraxy? Where's the practice? What, what, how does this in, integrate, intersect into my life? 
the church fathers for a thousand years, they did such a great job of taking complex truths and making it personal and that which we could now share with our kids. One of the simple statements that they, were, they created was a statement called Coram Deo. Coram Deo. And it's, it's a powerful pregnant term, but it simply means living before the face of God. So everything about the way that the, that the church fathers now understood John chapter 1 is that they saw God's power, they saw his presence, and now they, they knew his glory was the glue that held it all together, the Shekinah glory, bodied in Jesus, now was, was there for us to imbibe and live before Live before the face of God. And, and let, let me just walk you through how this has been for me over this past two weeks as I've prepared for this. This is me. This is what it looks like for me to quorum Deo. To live before the face of God. To see the big idea and to live into the one who makes the big idea even possible. It starts, what, what I have, where, where the quorum Deo life begins for me is through the, the power of the Gospels. Now, this is what Thomas Merton says. I love this. The mystery of Christ in the Gospels concentrates the rays of God's light and fire to the point that it sets fire to the spirit of man. Living under the Gospels, who Jesus is, how he lives, how he thinks, how he dreams, how he operates with people, living into that sets fire to me. Sets fire to my mind. It gives, it revigorates me, reinvigorates me to, to understanding how I can navigate the fog, see the big idea, live into that. That the, the three-letter word, the three-letter statement, three-word statement, Jesus is Lord. This is what it looks like for me to quorum Deo. To be constantly recalibrated to, to Christ's power and his presence and saying, Jesus, your Lord, I invite you into every crevice of my heart. I invite you. I invite you into my passions. I invite you into my rebellion. I invite you into my, my sin and my victories. I invite you into my dreams that haven't gone the way that I thought they would. I invite you into the relationships that I've ruined. I invite you into my kids' lives, into my marriage. I, I want you to be Lord. I surrender to your power. Come up underneath your presence. And finally, I wait on the Lord. I wait. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. I have found that it's, I'm a doer, I get things done, like I get them done. Ready, fire, aim, fire again. I love a life that's going a thousand miles an hour. This verse is so hard for me. This verse 
is what it looks like for me to quorum Deo, to wait, to wait, to slow, to slow down, to slow down. And as I choose to slow down and take the, and, and take the, the reins of direction out of my own hands and put him into the hands of the one who has all power and is, is, has all presence, the very strength of the Father becomes my strength. The very direction and guidance and vision of the Father becomes mine through waiting. What is all this about? It's all driving us to life. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. My, my, my hope for us tonight is that we would be revived in life. Life in the Logos. We'll end with this quote by John Updike. He says this, A narrative is like a room on those walls a number of false doors have been painted. A narrative is like a room on whose walls a number of false doors have been painted. While within the narrative, we have many apparent choices of exit. But when the author leads us to one particular door, we know it is the right one because it opens. See, we live in a world where there's so many doors that we're knocking on, hoping that they'll open. The door of self, the door of power, the door of prestige, the door of authority, the door of of happiness, the door of sexuality, the door of identity. We're knocking and knocking and knocking on these doors and nothing's opening. And yet what Jesus has done, what John has done in this, these few verses is he's opened up the door to life in him, the Logos, the Word. All powerful, all personal. And he's inviting us to open up this door to wait on this one. Lord, we, we ask as we just take a moment to just think through all of the things that you want to do in us, Lord, we want to just wait on you. We want to wait on you. We want to ask that, God, that you would breathe on us, that you would freshly awaken us to the big idea of the word that became flesh. He's real. He's not impersonal. Lord, we thank you that as we wait on you, we get your strength. You give us, you breathe on us with your power. In your name we pray. Wait, I say, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord.
gonna wait on you And I've tasted your goodness And I trust in your promise And I'm gonna wait on you Yes, I'm gonna wait on you And I've tasted your goodness And I trust in your promise Lord, we thank you for the gift of Coram Deo, the gift of your face. Your face changes us. Your face is what we were made for. Living under and into the face of God, your presence that imbues us in all that we do, that we can be a government worker and we can Coram Deo. We can be a teacher, we can Coram Deo. We can be a pastor. We can quorum there. We can be one that, that works as a trash man. We can quorum Dale. Lord, I am asking that your people would freshly see who you are. Live with authority and live with confidence. Live where we can receive from your presence freshly. Be Viceroys, represent, rep, representatives on this earth for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.